Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, we're starting a new book today. We're going to begin studying the prophet of Jeremiah. Don't be afraid to look in the table of contents, but the prophet Jeremiah is after Psalms, it's after Proverbs, it's after the prophet of Isaiah. You get to Jeremiah, and I'm going to read in chapter 1 just the first eight verses. Hear now God's word. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I will send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we're reminded that you know us. You know us intimately. You know us fully. You know us from before we were born. You know us even in these quiet moments now. You see us. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will open up our hearts and our minds to see you too. That we will behold you And your knowledge of us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're starting a brand new book. We're jumping into Jeremiah, which means we have to do a little bit of work to get ourselves reoriented around this book and what's happening in this book. If you're taking notes today and you want to draw a timeline, you can make a simple line in your notes. And then remember that last year we studied the book of 1 Samuel. So we began to study the events that led up to the rise of David and his kingship. And all of that happens at the beginning of your timeline, which is 1000 BC. Then we just worked through the book of Hebrews, which that is written to the early church after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection within the first hundred years AD. And so we've spanned a thousand years of history between 1 Samuel and the book of Hebrews. I know this is going to feel a little bit like whiplash, but to get to the prophet Jeremiah, you almost have to cut that distance in half. You've got to back up to the 600s BC to land where Jeremiah is when he begins his ministry, which means, there's a lot to remember, the distance between David in 1 Samuel and King Josiah that we just heard about in Jeremiah is about 500 years of history. That's 500 years that have happened between David and Josiah. That is a massive amount of history. John and I are reading a fascinating book on the Reformation right now, and if you want the title, come to us, we'll give it to you. Uh, But we're reading it in anticipation of this year, the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg. All of that, Martin Luther and his world, happened 500 years ago. How would you even begin to bring someone up to speed on what has happened in the last 500 years? You've got to get them from Martin Luther 
and the Holy Roman Empire all the way to Ricky Martin and Google's empire. I mean, that's a massive amount of history, right? You got to know something about personal computers in Puerto Rico. It's a lot to take in and absorb and get up to speed with. But fortunately, we don't have to do that all in one Sunday because Jeremiah is actually, by word count, the longest book in the Bible. We've got time together to get oriented around Jeremiah's day and his world. And so this morning, we're just going to do two things. We're going to briefly get a little more setting that's given to us in this first paragraph. And then we're just going to say a few words and learn from Jeremiah's call. So let's start with the setting. Let's kind of get oriented around what we hear in this first paragraph, because When you read the first four verses of Jeremiah, you get hit with a lot of names and one place. And so I feel the need to confess something terrible to you. When I'm sitting at home alone with my Bible, and I've already gotten comfortable in my seat, and I've already poured my coffee, and I open something like Jeremiah, and I read a paragraph like verses one through four, and I realize that from where I'm sitting, I can't really reach my study Bible I just kind of skim it and move on, right? I mean, I don't even bother with the names and the place. I just kind of keep moving. And when we do that and just kind of try to pick out the timeless truth, we miss this massive context that is able to give us the meaning of Jeremiah chapter one. And so now we have an opportunity to pause and to linger over these four verses and understand something about the setting. We're going to, in these four verses, get a place, get a time, and we're going to get a person. That's what we're going to do in the setting. Here's the place. We learn right away that Jeremiah was born in the small town of Anathoth. Now, Anathoth is actually right next to Jerusalem. It's very close to Jerusalem, and it is within the small tribe of Benjamin. We know from studying 1 Samuel that Benjamin was once a royal tribe. Benjamin could boast that a king was in her midst because Saul, the first king of Israel, was from Benjamin. Benjamin was once a royal tribe, but Saul lost the kingship because of his disobedience, and Benjamin ceased to be a royal tribe. We also know that Anathoth, this city, was once the priestly city of Abiathar. Abiathar was the high priest and he hailed from Anathoth. But Abiathar lost the priesthood because he threw his weight behind the wrong king. He chose Adonijah instead of Solomon. And because of that, he was deposed and he was no longer the priest. So are you beginning to see this context around Jeremiah? It was once a royal tribe. It was once a priestly city. But right out of the gate, Jeremiah is born here at this time at a huge disadvantage. He might be in a suburb of Jerusalem, right outside the center of power, but he is a complete outsider. He's part of a tribe that was royal, but is no longer that. He was part of a city that was priestly, but is no longer that. He grows up in a community that talks about the glories of what could have been and what should have been. It's what I picture growing up in Buffalo, New York to be like. I mean, all you talk about is what could have been. That, that kind of gives us an, an immediate place, right? We're going to hear a lot more about how Jeremiah and his context fits into the global scheme, but that gives us a place. Let's talk about the time. 
the writer thinks it's important for us to know that these are the three kings that rule during the time that Jeremiah has his ministry. Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. We hear those names right off the bat. And these names probably don't mean a lot to us hearing them now in the 21st century, but they would have meant a whole lot to the original hearers of this book. They would have been able to spot those names immediately. To say Josiah and Jehoiakim to an Israelite would have been like saying Constantine and Caligula to a Roman Christian. They would have recognized those names immediately because Josiah was one of the best things that happened to the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jehoiakim, his son, was one of the worst things that happened to this kingdom of Judah. Josiah, he was eight years old when he became king. Do we have any eight-year-olds in here? Anybody in here who's seven or eight or nine? Could you raise your hands up high so we can get an idea? We've got a couple of them in here. That's how old, thank you guys, Josiah was when he first became king. He's actually about the same age as Jeremiah. They're born around the same time. And that means you have this little overlap, this window in which you have King Josiah and the prophet Jeremiah. They're working hand in hand to renew the kingdom. This is the best opportunity in a very sordid history of Israel that the kingdom can be renewed. Something absolutely crazy happens during the reign of Josiah. He's king. He has a heart for God. He might not know all what it means to follow God, but his desire is there. And halfway into his rule, a priest is cleaning out the temple. He's doing a little spring cleaning, and he opens up a closet, and lo and behold, beneath a bunch of scrolls, he finds the Bible. He finds the book of the law. Just the fact that it's buried in a closet and unknown to Josiah tells you something about the state of the kingdom by the time Josiah became king. But the priest, he finds the book of the law and he runs to Josiah and he opens it up and he says, look, I found God's word. And Josiah says, read it to me. And he reads it and Josiah tears his clothes and says, I want to do everything that's in this book. I want to follow God and I want to respond to his word. That's the image of Josiah. He's a righteous king who is moved by the word of God. That's a far cry from his son Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim will rule after Josiah and he's nothing like his father. In fact, he foregoes all of that stuff and brings back the evil practices of the kings before Josiah. And we get a very different picture of him in Jeremiah chapter 36. There's almost a similar scene in which the word of God is brought to Jehoiakim and the priest begins to read the words of the prophet Jeremiah to the king. And as the king hears the word of God being read to him, he pulls out a knife and he begins to cut the parts of the scroll that have been read and he throws them into the fire. He doesn't want to hear it. He wants nothing to do with it. Josiah and Jehoiakim, you have two very different reigns, very different kings during the time of Jeremiah. And we're going to learn later about Zedekiah, the puppet king, who will be the last king of Israel. That kind of begins to get us oriented around the place and the time, but let's say a word about the person, Jeremiah. 
we read a stinging note in verse four. We're not even out of the first paragraph and we already learned something terrible about the history of Israel. Look at verse four. All of this happens until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month, which means we already know we're about to meet a man whose mission in life is to preach, is to rebuke, is to weep, is to beg Judah to repent or face impending doom. And we learn four verses into a 52 chapter book that Jeremiah fails to bring change. He's going to dedicate his entire life to do something that ultimately fails. Jeremiah will do vocational ministry for 40 years. We learn from this book that Jeremiah, he never marries. We know about two named converts from his ministry. He ministers for 40 years and we only have two names of people that convert. He is completely rejected by his hometown and he will spend his life constantly in danger. In fact, commentators have dubbed Jeremiah the weeping prophet. He's going to be tortured by a priest and put in the stocks. He's going to be thrown into prison. At one point, he's going to be dropped in a muddy, dank cistern where he will almost die of starvation. At the end of his life, he is abducted and he's taken to Egypt, the very place he begs the people of Israel not to go. And it's there we presume that he dies and he dies alone. But before he does, he says this in Lamentations chapter 2. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets. That's one of the last things we hear from the prophet Jeremiah. The reason we are starting Jeremiah at the outset of Lent is because it forces us into the crucible of death. Jesus' death on the cross, and our own death as we take up our cross to follow him. All of that is so vividly illustrated in the life of Jeremiah. Somebody once said that Lent is preparation for martyrdom. It absolutely is in all its forms. But you know what? Lent is also preparation for resurrection. And that is going to be the brightness in Jeremiah's sadness. A chapter after the weeping and the churning and the bile, Jeremiah speaks one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire Bible. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the time, that's the place, that's the person of Jeremiah. It's kind of eerie, I think, to know all these details about Jeremiah and his explosive setting right at the outset of his ministry. We all know all this stuff about Jeremiah, that Jeremiah, he doesn't know about himself. 
He's just a young man from a backwater, has-been town without a lot of connections. In fact, he's so ignorant of his own story that when God comes to call him, the only excuse he can think to make in verse 6 is, I'm young and I don't speak very well because Jeremiah doesn't know to say, I don't want to stand before kings and priests who will hate me. I don't want to suffer and die alone. You open up the first paragraphs of Jeremiah and it feels like a Shakespearean tragedy is underway. It's this dreadful convergence of events and people, right? You've got Josiah and Jehoiakim. We're going to meet Nebuchadnezzar. You have Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. All of this is hurtling towards pain and loss and there's absolutely nothing anybody can do about it. Jeremiah is just born in the wrong time, in the wrong place. 70 years. If Jeremiah had been born 70 years earlier or 70 years later, we would have a completely different book on our hands. In fact, we might have a book that would be chapter after chapter of Sunday pick-me-ups, right? We could get in, we could read it, we could be encouraged, we could rev up the band, we could put color back in our bulletins, we could speak a service of nothing but euphemisms. In fact, we might be tempted to go ahead and skip Lent and get right to Easter. But Jeremiah wasn't born 70 years in either direction. In fact, he wasn't born a millisecond too early or too late. The suffering, cruciform life of Jeremiah was by design. Today, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're coming to the table of the broken body of Jesus. And today, when we begin a new book, we're coming to the broken body of Jeremiah. And if there is absolutely anything you take from chapter one, even if you forget the entire history lesson, hear this, the story of Jeremiah is not an accident. Verse five Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. The story of Jeremiah doesn't begin with the birth of Jeremiah. The most important thing to know about Jeremiah are not the events that are going to happen to the person of Jeremiah. That's true of the prophet, but it is also true of you and of I. We might not share his vocational call, but what we do share with Jeremiah is that we are intimately and personally known by God before our birth. Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The most important thing about us is not who we are, it's not what we're capable of, it's not what we're going to accomplish or not accomplish in this life, it's not even what comedy or tragedy the script of our lives become. The most important, enduring, centering thing about us is being known by the living God. Let's pray together. Father, that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that this is the thing that centers us above all circumstances, but it is. It is true. You know us. 
You form us, you fashion us, and you consecrate us. And I pray that we would have this vision of you at the center of all of our beings, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.